live in a, a dark world. The last week has made that clear again. Our consciences have once again been shocked as we've seen and read reports. Many of us have seen with our own eyes the horrible atrocities that took place in Bucha, Ukraine. So evil, so dark. This world is so wonderful and beautiful, but at the same time, we, we can't seem to escape its, its darkness. When events like this happen, what do the scriptures have to say to this kind of a world, this, this dark world? Well, scriptures not only reflect what the world is really like, but they also reveal the deepest truths about our world. The scriptures don't hide from anything. That helps us as we go into what is a very dark chapter of scripture, Genesis chapter 34, which is where we will be this morning. Genesis 34, it's a chapter in which sin and darkness are simply everywhere. As we come to a chapter like this, I hope you will see the scriptures as a gift in this way. They are not disconnected from the real world in which we live. The the scriptures not just describe, but reveal the deepest realities of our world. And so it's the scriptures that offer us the most realistic hope. Here's the main point I want you to see in this dark chapter. Even when sin is all you can see, God remains faithful. Even when sin is all you can see, God remains faithful. I want to walk through this chapter walking through four different scenes in this chapter. So number one, Genesis 34, number one, scene one, sight and seizure. That's S-E-I-Z or Z-U-R-E, seizure. That's verses one to four. Look down at God's word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. That's the first scene. We were prepared for this chapter at the end of the last chapter. Look up to verse 18 of chapter 33. We saw there that Jacob came to this city, Shechem, in the land of Canaan, and he camped before in the sight of the city. He bought land. He pitched his tent, and he worshiped. Now, back in chapter 28, 
Jacob had pledged to return to Bethel. If the Lord would bring him back safely, there he would build an altar, a temple, a place for God. Shechem was just a little north of Bethel. Jacob bought land and camped very close to Bethel. Why did Jacob settle there when he needed to keep going? We don't know the time frame between the end of chapter 33 and these events in chapter 44, 34, when we immediately meet Dinah. We met her briefly in chapter 30. She's Leah's daughter, born after her six sons. She was born in the midst of those terrible birth wars between Leah and Rachel. And we learn that she went out to see the women of the land. Now, this is concerning. The end of Genesis 27, Rebecca had this very concern about her son Jacob. She said, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, you all know in this part of the world how often women are protected by their brothers, by their families. So it's most likely unusual, especially in the ancient Near East, that she goes out without a man with her. This venturing out, it was that that was the occasion for Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hittite, to see her. Now, who is who's Hamor? He's the prince of the land. He's some kind of ruler of this little kingdom. This is a prominent family. And Moses, who's the author of the first five books of the Bible, he slows down and he tells us what Shechem did. He saw her, he seized her, lay with her, humiliated her. This is Shechem's sin. He sees and he seized. His sight drives his actions. Now, I want you to see this pattern. What do we see in Genesis 3, 6, about the first sin in the world? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, she took. And then if we go to Genesis 6, verse 2, we read this. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Here is Shechem repeating a pattern that has destroyed the world. He sees and he takes. He sees and he seizes. This is a terrible sin. Sexual sin is terrible. It violates one's person and body. I want to be very clear at the beginning of this chapter that if you've been sinned against in this way, it was wrong. It was not your fault. It does not matter in any way if Dinah was even wrong for going out to see the women of the land. Dinah is not at fault in this chapter. She's been sinned against terribly. This is reported. It's not commended. If you've been sinned against in this way, please do not think that you have to keep that to yourself. 
or that you're less than anyone else in this room, I hope you will talk to someone you trust. I hope you would feel free to talk to me or a a pastor here. This is not the topic that is off limits or unacceptable in this church. And on the other side of this, we as a church will take sin like this very seriously. We will involve legal authorities when it's necessary. We will not cover it up as if grace somehow absolves you of legal consequences. What Shechem did was wrong. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. What are we to do? What are we to do with even the, this, this love and tender speech when it's done? Well, we're to notice first, he's not sorry. There's no repentance. He's not concerned for the consequences. His only concern is to seize more. He tells his father, get me this girl for my wife. So he's no concern for what is right. He is a man driven by his own sinful desire. He saw, he sees, lays, humiliates. The desires, the lust of his eyes lead him to wicked action. Sinful sight, undergirded by sinful desire, leads to sinful action. Now, when I was a child, I sang a song that I'm sure some of you at least sang as a child. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Do you know this song? Do you want to sing it? I'm kidding. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's so simple. It's so profound. It's not just a silly little song for children. It was a song for Shechem. It's a song for us. As we look at this text this morning, what are you seeing with your eyes? Very directly, are you looking at what you should not be looking at? On the internet? It's a dangerous way to live. His site, Shechem, was at first personal and private. It's going to lead to public consequences he could not fathom. You know that even in the looking, you are taking what is not yours. You are furthering industries. You are demanding what should not be demanded. Sin might occur in private. It does not stay that way. It has public consequences. I also want to say that despite of what much of our world says, now your desires are not ultimate. And and that's actually good news. It is good news because you are not defined by your desire. Desire is a part of who you are. It's not who you are. In a fallen world, in fallen bodies, many of our desires are meant to be denied. They are meant to be crucified. The God who's created desire is the God who knows what is delightful. Now, I want to expand this a bit. Some of you are seeing other people's lives or their possessions or their circumstances and you want to seize them. Your desires convince you that you want what God has not given you and you want to take. So what will you trust? Your fallen desires or your good God? Ask God to strengthen your desires. When we desire what is 
less than what God reveals to us is desirable, truly desirable. C.S. Lewis makes this so clear. Our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. Ask the Lord to shape you at the level of your desires. Behind this horribly wicked act was a beginning that seemed so small. He saw and in his sight, he desired what he should have denied. And so he seized and it sets off a chain of events he cannot fathom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the hope of heaven assures us one day that what we see and what we desire will be righteous, totally good, and totally satisfying. Trust the Lord and wait. Once again in Genesis, we're warned against living by sight. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see And what you desire, ensure it's truly desirable. Sight and seizure. That's the first scene. Now let's go to the second. This is verses 5 through 24. Reactions and request. Reactions and request. Verse 5 through verse 24. Look down at verse 5. And let's begin to see all these reactions. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister, Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, We will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. 
So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. There's sin, and then there's always the aftermath of sin. Sin is never consequence-free. Look at all these reactions. First, we have Jacob. Verse 5, he hears that his daughter Dinah was defiled. Now, this word defile indicates more than just something bad happening. It's a particular word that means that what happened caused her to be in an impure state. In the ancient world, both physically, undesired for marriage, and then ceremonially, no longer able to approach a sacred space. Now, there's even provision made for this very situation later in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22, we'll look at it in a second. It's to protect the woman from this kind of evil when this takes place. And that helps us to see why this term is being used again and again. Jacob hears correctly, but he holds his peace until his sons come. If you're reading the NIV version, it says Jacob did nothing. And then in verse 6, we have Hamor and Shechem going out to Jacob to speak to him. Notice what Jacob's sons do when they hear of this. They were indignant, very angry. He had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Such a thing must not be done. So see from the text itself, there's no moral ambiguity about this. Moses even says this was an outrageous thing in Israel. Israel's not a nation at this point. He's making this clear to the people of his own day that this act was wrong and it must not be done. But look how passive Jacob is. He does nothing. No emotion is even mentioned. None. I mean, in Genesis already, we've seen Jacob weep. We've seen him show fear. We've seen him exercise strength. He, he recently wrestled with God all night long. He does nothing. He says nothing. How different are his sons? They hear about this outrageous thing. She was defiled. They're indignant. They're very angry. That's the right reaction to such a wicked act. Shechem, verse 7, lay with Jacob's daughter. But it is Dinah's brothers who are outraged. And it's not until verse 8 we first see Hamor's reaction. In verses 8 through 10, he makes quite a number of requests. He speaks about his son's love for Jacob's daughter. He asks that they give her to be his wife. He wants them to intermarry. He wants them to dwell in the land, to trade, to get property. 
And then Shechem speaks up in verse 11. Whatever you say, I will give it as a bride price. Whatever you say, just give me the young woman to be my wife. He is so driven by unchecked desire. And notice what we did not hear. There's no apology. They don't acknowledge this was a terrible wrong. They don't do anything to offer to make amends for this guilt. They just make requests. Hamar is a man with power. And he doesn't see that there is justice that needs to be done. There's only deals to be made. So this is power used wickedly. We, we long for it, don't we? We, we? we are blessed when those who have power use it to, ex, to protect and not exploit the vulnerable, to restrain evil, not to do evil, certainly not to overlook evil. This is why we pray for people in power over us. Now, if you have power, if you have authority in your workplace, do those under your authority flourish? How do you use your authority? I wonder how those under your authority would say that you use your power. Authority in itself is good. When authority is used rightly, it shows what God is like. God always uses his authority for good. Now, your authority may just be in your home or it may be in a very small sphere, but are you using it for good? Even in this, as a Christian, you can image what God is like in this world that is so filled with wicked authority. The world, like Hamor, may abuse its authority. Now, that should never be the case in the church. Pastors should always be those whose lives match their teaching, not perfectly, but faithfully and repentantly. Pastoral authority is to be used righteously, always for God's glory, not for our own. I think this is a good way to pray for our church and for other churches, because when authority is used well, it gives life, it protects, it allows those who are under it to flourish Here, Hamor uses his authority to enable his son to cover up his wickedness. And this is wicked. Shechem doesn't apologize either. He's not ashamed in verse 11. He is willing to pay for her to be his wife. Deuteronomy 22, which we heard earlier, verses 28 through 29, Moses included this in the law. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her, there's the word, and lies with her, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all her days. So the law was making provision for the one who was violated, who was vulnerable. It would have left her vulnerable in the ancient world. And 50 shekels was considered to be a lot of money. So Shechem's not committing the crime and and, and running, but neither is there any sorrow. Desire drives him. What about Jacob? You remember how much initiative he took in pursuing Rachel? Even what we saw in the way that he carefully thought through every word that would be said to, to Esau. 
he just continues to have no reaction. It's Hamor who took the initiative after his son's wicked act. They both made requests. Jacob is silent. Imagine a father being silent in the face of this. Husbands, fathers, we need to take initiative. We need to lead. What if Jacob had gone to Hamor instead of Hamor going to Jacob? What if Jacob had set the terms instead of Hamor setting them? What if, what if, what if? How are we leading our families? How do we need to grow? Are you leading spiritually? If you're not married, are you preparing to lead in this way? Or are you just self, selfishly taking, taking, taking? We need to fight passivity. We need to lead our wives and our children toward flourishing. Now, if this is new to you, what if this week you took some steps to, to read the Bible? Or to pray with your family? Or maybe even just ask them, what did you learn from the sermon it can feel strange at first, but start, start taking steps in that direction. I imagine if you're like me, you fell the first time that you tried to ride a bike. It's okay if you stumble in this way. The passivity here is devastating. It's hurting people. Now, I want you to notice as well what Shechem and Hamor are offering. They're offering to them land and marriages, settling down with them. So Hamor is seeking to guarantee to Jacob what God's already promised him. You know, Jacob is already separated from Laban. He separated from Esau. Will he separate from Hamor and Shechem? The seed of the serpent is at stake. Uh, the seed of the woman is at stake here if they intermarry. But he stays silent. Passivity fails to protect the vulnerable. It fails to provide leadership when leadership is needed. Finally, verse 13. Jacob's sons, not Jacob, speak. What's their reaction? They answer deceitfully. Now, this word deceived is used so we know it's not commended. At the same time, they do it because, again, Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah. So if Hamor and Shechem's reaction and request was based on money, economics, their request, their reaction is based on religion. Verse 14, they can't give their sister to a man uncircumcised. The only way, verses 15 and 16, they'll do it is if all the males of the Hivites are circumcised. If not, they take Dinah and they leave. So they're like their father Jacob, aren't they? They deceive and what's the reaction from Hamor and Shechem in verse 18? Their words pleased them. Why? They heard what they wanted to hear. And he didn't delay to do the thing. What pleases Hamor and Shechem? They pursue. So you, you, you can see in this that societies that are built on the basis of desire become cruel places to live. Why? Because our desires can lie to us about what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Much of the world is falling for this lie that following your desire is the surest path to become the true version of yourself. Who are you to question someone else's desires? 
A father who believes he needs to abandon his family to reach truest life he can have follows his desires and leaves tragedy in his wake. The, the mom who thinks, I, I want to have it all wrongly sidelines children in order to do just that, fueled by desire. Rulers will do whatever it takes to get that and to keep it because they desire it. If what you desire cannot be enjoyed to the glory of God, it's a desire that needs to be denied, crucified. In your own life, that's a great place to invite someone else in if you struggle there. It's what pleases Shechem that's led him to this point. He's being deceived by desire and he doesn't see it. And he's going to use everyone else to get what he desires. These men had power, but they were slaves to their desires. Kids, come back to me. Did your parents tell you no at any point this past week about something you wanted to do, maybe about a computer, a, mo- a movie? I never liked it, never liked it when my parents told me no when I was growing up. Now, they didn't have to do it, I'm kidding. When I got older, they would tell me no about all kinds of things that I wanted. But they proved to be so wise. They were teaching me my desires aren't ultimate. And what you want right now is not ultimate. Even at your, your age, lean into your parents. Listen to them. Learn now to test what you desire against God's word. And don't be ashamed of what God says is desirable, even when all your friends think it's silly. Trust what the Lord says about your desires, that it's better than what you think. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to our desires, God is weighty and glorious and big enough to handle them. He's not going to leave us feeling empty or guilty. He works at this very deep level to give us power for what is called the expulsive power of new affections. Ask the Lord to shape and to reshape what you desire. Shechem here will not quit until his desire is met. So how far do he and his father go to convince all the men to do the thing? Look at verses 20 through 23. They never say a word about Shechem's desires. It's as if what happened isn't even part of the equation. Completely deceived, they say, these men are at peace with us. Let them trade, marry, we have enough land. The only condition is get circumcised. Hey guys, we're going to be rich. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? They never said that to Jacob's sons. They hid Shechem's wicked act from these men. We see from the very beginning, public leaders often wickedly ask their people to do what will only further their personal interest. Christians are called to be those who pray and honor and obey those in authority, but we aren't to be naive about the way authority works. Shechem's wickedness leads to all kinds of reactions and requests. There's passivity, there's deceit. Certainly from Shechem and Hamor, there's no no sorrow. There's no concern for justice. They just keep requesting more. And then the men of the city, it's their desire for riches that leads them 
to get circumcised. Desire, run amok, is driving so much of this. And then that desire ultimately leads to, number three, recklessness and revenge. Scene three, recklessness and revenge. Look down at verse 25. We'll read through verse 29. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So dark. This reckless act of revenge happens on the third day a day which later in Scripture, God will bring about resurrection life. It's a day for death. It's horrible and unjust. Simeon and Levi were Leah's sons, so they were two of Dinah's full brothers. They carry out the unjust act. Jacob is silent. He's passive. There's no treaty. There's no effort at justice. There's just reckless revenge. They killed every single male. This is an atrocity. In today's language, we would call this a war crime. One teacher said it so well. This is holy war apart from divine sanction. Circumcision was God's covenant sign to Abraham. It was the sign that God would bless the world through Abraham. It pointed to many offspring and ultimately the offspring. It's the sign of blessing and life, the the sign for inclusion in the people of God. It's used to destroy and deceive One friend of mine said, this is like using baptism to drown people. This was horrible. A pillaging, a massacre that took place. It's it's, it's as dark as it gets. One sin leads to an entire people following their desires to the point that it kills them all. And it leads to this reckless revenge, this miscarriage of justice by the patriarchs of Israel. Only two brothers did it. The rest of the brothers, verse 27, all of them, the sons of Jacob, plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their lives. They took everything. Verse 28, their animals. Verse 29, their wealth. All the little ones, the wives, they they captured everything. They plundered it. Remember what Shechem and Hamar used to persuade the men of the city to do this? Their livestock, their beasts, their property will be ours. It's the exact opposite that's true here. Sin's desires lead to death. Literally here, it's death. This massacre is not commended. They acted deceitfully. Jacob had acted in other ways, treaty negotiation, diplomatically separating from Esau, But here, the void of his silence is filled with reckless revenge. Now, should Shechem's sin sin have been addressed? Yes. Should every male have been killed? No. 
Did you notice in verse 26 what else they took? And took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The whole time Shechem and Hamor had Dinah in their house. Changes everything about the way we're reading the chapter. It it even makes Jacob's passivity even more horrible. Calls us to see even more how wicked Shechem and Hamor are. Doesn't justify the brother's action. It does make us understand a bit more their deceit. Centuries after this account, the nation of Israel would engage in holy war. But it was divinely sanctioned. It was the meeting out of the judgment of God, not justice, wrongly miscarried. This is not divinely sanctioned righteous wrath. We're meant to recoil in horror against this. But we're not, even in Genesis, meant to see the difference between wrath, vengeance, rightly and wrongly carried out. Leave room for God's wrath. That's what Gemma read to us earlier from Romans. It is appropriate to work through God-ordained institutions for justice, the government, the courts, even the church. Personal vengeance is what we are called against not doing, called against doing. The cross assures us that our God is committed to justice and grace. God will carry out righteous, praiseworthy wrath in the future. Our sins are not private matters. God is going to, like Hamor, simply overlook. He's too good to do that. God is so committed to doing what is right, he has publicly come into the world in his own son to live for sinners and to die for sinners. He came to do the works of salvation, to accomplish salvation. And he was successful. And then he died a death, a substitutionary death for sinners. So the cross screams to the world how seriously God takes sin, how just and true his wrath is, but also just how good he is, how gracious his salvation is. Jesus bore the righteous and real wrath of God in his body on the cross so that all who believe in Christ, our substitute, will not bear wrath. So what will you do when when God demands of you, because he will, an accounting for your sin? Point to some deeds that you did? A little bit of good? Or will you point to the cross? cross alone can bear the weight of your sin. It's there that God's wrath and his justice and his mercy and his grace all meet in one. And then the resurrection proclaims to the world, God accepted this sacrifice. Whatever sin it is, it is not so deep that the cross does not go deeper still. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. Find refuge in Christ and life in his name. When Christ comes to right all the wrongs of this world, there will be nothing reckless about it. God's vengeance will be praiseworthy and exact. Even in this, see the beauty of the cross. God's good, pure, holy wrath is forever put into contrast the fallen, 
corrupted, sinful wrath of men. Recklessness and revenge. Finally, we see in the fourth scene, cowardice and concern. Cowardice and concern. Look at verses 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob finally speaks. We hear his voice, not concerned for his daughter, not the terrible wrongs that have been committed. He's concerned about the trouble that he brought on him, making him stink. He might get attacked. Here we see again Jacob, the coward. He doesn't lead. He doesn't protect. He's back into old patterns, only concerned for himself. But the sons get the last word. Should he treat our sister, Dinah's Jacob's daughter, our sister like a prostitute? But Jacob hasn't protected her. So the brothers own the relationship. We leave this chapter rightly thinking about how Dinah was treated. The concern of the brothers is right. It's their actions that weren't. And now this family is in jeopardy. Jacob had made a vow. He would return to Bethel and he would build a place for God. But he stopped in Shechem. And it almost destroyed them. This is darkness. Reckless revenge by the family God created to bless the world. How dark is this chapter? Did you notice as we read this chapter, God's name is not mentioned once? It's total godlessness. There's no worship. God didn't speak in this chapter like he did in previous chapters. It's a mini picture of what a godless world looks like. The only religious symbol in it is circumcision, and it's used to bring death. Who in this chapter is concerned for God and his glory? Who desires to walk according to God's ways? It, I don't think it's a mistake that Jacob is called Jacob and not Israel. How quickly he's fallen after the night of wrestling with God. Faithlessness. But was God faithful? I don't want us to leave this chapter without seeing this final truth. Number five, faithfulness and forgiveness. Faithfulness and forgiveness. When all you see is sin, God remains faithful. First, the seed of the woman. The seed is still protected. The terrible sin by Shechem and Hamar and the aftermath, from all of that, God's people did not intermarry. That would have put the line of the Messiah in jeopardy. When all you see is sin, do not think that it stops God's faithfulness. Second, even though there's sin involved, and there is, God keeps his word. He will curse those who curse his people. Shechem's sin, their attempt to intermarry, even to plunder Jacob's family, leads to their destruction. Now the sons sinned, but here's God protecting Jacob and the sons, not because of their faithfulness, but in spite of it. We lead this chapter Again, seeing sin and darkness. God does not bind himself to his people because of our goodness, but his vengeance characterizes the brothers. 
and it's vengeance that will rear its head again with these brothers. These brothers in in the not too distant future will turn their hate not against Shechem, but against their own brother, Joseph. Instead of killing him, Judah will mercifully ask that he be sold as a slave. God's providence is at work in all of it. And after many years, God will raise him up to work a mighty salvation. When he has the opportunity and the power, Joseph will not take revenge on his brothers. He will forgive every one of them. In a greater way, brothers and sisters, God's own son came into the world not to exact vengeance against this world of rebels, but at the cost of his own blood to purchase forgiveness. He did not call down the wrath of God on the cross. He suffered that in himself. He did not cry out for the father to exact vengeance. He cried out for the father to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The scriptures very realistically show us the darkness of this world. And so we can trust the scriptures when they very realistically show us the goodness of the cross. The cross alone can bear wickedness at this depth, at the depth in our own hearts. And at the same time, it can satisfy the demands of justice and offer us all real grace and forgiveness. This is a chapter in which the wrong oft seems so strong. But the faithful God remains and he offers us forgiveness in the cross of his son. Let's pray.